welcome to Haunted Crimes Podcast, where we will explore stories around the world and the internet about true crimes and its haunting effect. Join us wherever you listen to your podcast. And now, here's your episode. In 1972, artist Bill Stoneham created a painting called The Hands Resist Him that nearly 30 years later took the internet by storm as a supposedly cursed artwork that allegedly brought macabre visions to many people who saw it. According to the artist himself, the painting was based on a photo taken of him when he was five years old. At that time, Stoneham's father was working in advertising and traveled a lot. So the family was staying at their grandmother's apartment in Chicago to save money. One day, Stoneham's parents took a photo of him and a girl from the neighborhood posing in front of a glass door. While creating the painting, Stoneham made changes to the original image. He blurred his own face and made the young girl's face look more like a lifeless doll. And behind the glass door are hands reaching out and pressing against it. I don't like that already. I've seen the painting. You're seeing the painting right now. And it's a... You don't want that on your wall. You don't want that on your wall. It doesn't give good. It doesn't. You know. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. doesn't it, it doesn't scream fun. Is all I'm gonna say. That being said, it's a fantastic piece of art. I mean, Stoneham's control of the brush really uh, evokes uh, the same style of Bernard Duprash. You know, uh, the famous, of course, uh, Hungarian painter. I don't know what I'm fucking talking. Stoneham about. said the hands were all of the possibilities. You were left with a question. Are these disembodied hands? Are they dismembered floating there in space? Or are they connected to bodies? You know, he's right. That's exactly that's exactly what I was thinking when I saw it. I'm sure you guys were, too. Stoneham also said that the hands can be viewed as other lives. He explained the glass door is that thin veil between waking and dreaming. The girl slash doll is the imagined companion or guide through this realm. Stoneham finished his contract in 1974 with a large gallery show hosted by a gentleman named Feingarten. Actor John Marley, most famous for playing a movie producer who finds a horse head in his bed in The Godfather, purchased the hands resist him at the show. Ah, iconic scene in The Godfather. Let me know what your favorite Godfather scene is down in the comments below. So many to choose from, but the horse, the horse head in the bed. Ah, ah, ah. Good shit. Noted Los Angeles Times art critic Henry Seldes also gave the painting its first press mention in a write-up about the event. According to reports, Seldes the critic, Feingarten the gallery owner, and Marley the actor all died in the next few years between 1978 and 1984. Stoneham says that while their deaths are likely a coincidence, the painting has always had a certain effect on people. He explained, some of what I paint resonates in other people, opening the inner door or basement. Ooh, this this gentleman, not only can he can he paint with a brush, but he can certainly paint quite a picture with his words too. I like that. That said, I, I do believe that this this it seems more like a coincidence than anything. Let me know what you think down below. But yeah, eh, I'm I'm more inclined to think right now, 
at this point in the story that is a coincidence. Marley the actor actually sold the painting before he died and no one knows where it was for years before turning up abandoned behind a California brewery turned art space. Stoneham said he has no idea how it ended up abandoned at a building, though I could speculate. Later, a family listed the painting for sale on eBay in February of 2000. The original eBay listing said in all caps, one morning, our four and a half year old daughter claimed that the children in the picture were fighting and coming into the room during the night. According to the listing, the father of the young girl set up a motion sensor camera to show her that there was nothing to be afraid of. Instead, the listing insists, the father saw footage of the boy crawling out of the painting. Well, that's fucking terrifying. There are many things that would terrify me in the middle of the night, like, you know, someone sitting at the foot of my bed someone reaching up from under the bed, grabbing my leg. But the thought of looking up and seeing a boy crawling out of a painting is not something I really want to ever have happen to me. And I genuinely don't know why this family uh, chose to list this painting on eBay instead of just, you know, setting it on fire. According to a BBC report, the eBay listing also included pictures purporting to show the doll coming to life and using a gun to force the boy to leave the painting. In the regular painting, the doll is holding a battery with exposed wires, according to Stoneham. A disclaimer was included with the listing that absolved the seller from all liability. The listing was viewed more than 30,000 times, and some viewers complained to sellers about supernatural experiences that happened to them after merely looking at a photo of the painting on eBay. According to Spokane Spokesman Review, one viewer of the listing reported hearing an exorcist-type voice along with a blast of hot air. Another viewer said he became ill upon seeing the painting and had to burn white sage to cleanse his house afterward. After an initial bid of $199, the painting garnered 30 bids and sold for $1,025 to the Perception Gallery in Grand Rapids, Michigan. By the time of the sale, the online legend of the painting began spreading well beyond eBay. These days, followers of certain Reddit threads, 4chan's Paranormal Portal, and Encyclopedia Dramatica's Creepypasta Wiki, among others, seem to truly believe the painting is haunted and have reported their own strange reactions to the art. According to the Daily Dot, Perception Gallery's owner, Kim Smith, said a month after buying the painting that no strange occurrences had yet happened, except those reported by other people familiar with the artwork. Smith said the unusual things only started happening with the first email and counting. She noted prayers and quotes from the scriptures from a man of faith. Advice for how to cleanse my residence of this evil thing from a Native American shaman in Mississippi. Reports of people being repulsed, made physically ill, or suffering from a blackout slash mind control experiences. According to Smith, someone even said that their new Epson printer ate and mutilated page after page when the user tried to print downloaded images of the artwork. I mean, if the printer isn't proof, then I don't know what is. But I mean, honestly, they're saying that these supernatural things happen even just by looking at a picture of it online. So we could be all exposing ourselves in this video already. So if you have anything bad happen to you uh, after watching this video, you know, shoot me a message and, and let me know. Unless, of course, the boy has crawled out of the painting, taking you into it, and you're now locked forever uh, inside a painting. If so, uh... Sorry about that. A few years later, Stoneham was commissioned by a private collector to make two sequels to the painting. The first was finished in 2004, titled Resistance at the Threshold, and the second was completed in 2012 under the name Threshold of Revelation. The sequels depict the doll becoming a real girl and the boy becoming a bearded old man. Those are pretty cool concepts for sequels. You know, I, I didn't know that paintings could really have sequels. 
I mean, I guess you could have paintings in a series, but either way, that's that's pretty cool. You know, maybe, you know, Stoneham, he's building his own kind of like cinematic universe, the Stoneham cinematic universe, you know, the, the multiverse will open, of course, uh, and shenanigans abound. But for now, you know, Stoneham, he's, he's taken a page out of the old Disney book. By the way, who in the comments has, has seen Spider-Man No Way Home? Because I need to talk about it with people. It has been over a month and I'm still thinking about it. Eventually, even a prequel was commissioned. The Hands Invent Him, which released in 2017. Here, Stoneham takes a very meta approach to show a young boy holding a paintbrush as he approaches a window where the silhouettes of the original doll and boy are visible. It's as if the boy is preparing to use his art to bring these figures from beyond into our world. Genuinely though, I think Stoneham has done an incredible job uh, uh, finding new ways to continue this series of paintings. I mean, each one of these additional interpretations uh, or I guess additions he's making seem very cool and inventive. So if you're watching this, Mr. Stoneham, good job. Keep that painting away from me, please. If you're not sufficiently creeped out yet, a final painting in this series released last year titled What Remains. Here, the window is gone, replaced by a disturbing void to another realm that's marked by what appears to be doll legs and a human skull. Stoneham is now 67 and still receives messages about what has become known as the haunted eBay painting. He said, We live in an age of science, of revelation, and hard realities and hard facts, but we are still drawn to the mysterious. Adding, And what is more mysterious than paintings? More than any other object, paintings are a one-of-a-kind thing created by someone using their hands. And to piggyback off of Mr. Stoneham, I guess, while creating something with one's own hands does add a bit more power and legitimacy to a piece of art. It's really the painting of other hands, many hands, reaching from endless blackness toward our vulnerable little world that gives us the willies. It sounds as if Stoneham never meant to scare anyone with the original painting, but that attests to the subjective beauty and horror of the medium. Truly, one man's meditation is another one's nightmare. In Japan, one of the most peaceful countries in the world, times are changing. A succession of brutal, horrific murders have shocked the nation. Murders committed not by hardened criminals or the secretive Japanese mafia, but by middle-class teenagers with no criminal record, killing indiscriminately. Japan is in a serious crisis with its teenagers committing gruesome, terrible crimes, killing their classmates, killing kids in the neighborhood. They can destroy, they can attack. And that is incredibly frightening. In the last decade, over 100 murders have been committed by teenagers. Many have a grotesque horror movie quality to them and are characterized by extreme cruelty. A 14-year-old decapitated a younger boy and placed his head on the school gate. 
A 17-year-old hijacked a bus and stabbed commuters with a huge carving knife. What has caused this recent spate of murder in a country whose young people are traditionally at the heart of a peaceful, ordered society? Japanese have always viewed children as naturally good and gentle and kind, naive human beings. To think that a kid feels that he hates that person so much that he wants to destroy that person, it's quite shocking to everyone. One of the first cases that shattered the serenity of Japanese life happened in 1993 in a quiet northern town called Shinjo. 13-year-old Yuhei Kodama was killed in a school gym after an unprovoked attack by a group of schoolboys aged between 13 and 16. On the day he died, my wife reminded him that he was supposed to come home early for an English lesson. He said, I know, I know, I'm off now. His voice stayed in my head ever since. When Yuhei didn't come home at the usual time, we contacted the school and asked them to look around for him. After the phone call, I ran to school, as it's not far from here. I saw that the door of the gym was open, so I went inside. I found a boy lying in the middle of the floor. I couldn't recognize him because of his swollen face. When I looked closer, I saw that the shape of the nose and lips were the same as Yuhei's. I held him, shook him, and called his name, Yuhei, Yuhei, but there was no response. The boys had apparently lynched him, kicked and hit him, then they threw him inside a rolled-up gym mattress. He suffocated to death. No teacher was present, and no one knows what actually happened to Yuhei in the hours leading up to his death. No reason was ever given for this brutal attack. For two or three years after we lost Yuhei, we felt lost too. We didn't know what to do after my son Yuhei was killed. I felt a piercing pain in my heart when I saw boys of the same age going to school. Yuhei died on the 13th of January. Every month on the 13th day, we cook the food my son used to love. We offer it to him to comfort his soul as part of the Buddhist ceremony called Meinichi. I think one of the reasons that Yuhei was killed was that the boys who weren't any good at school felt desperate about their future. The boys were possibly jealous of his educational success. 
When I think about the offending boys, I think of them as evil. But at the same time, I know that they are human beings, just like me. Of the boys who killed my son, three of them went to reform school and one got two weeks suspension. The other three were let off completely. None of the offenders who attacked Yuhei spent more than a few months in a juvenile reformatory. Yuhei is dead. The offending boys should have got longer sentences. The Japanese legal system is not working. I think it's useless. The Japanese Prime Minister acknowledged that Yuhei's death was only the tip of the iceberg. He blamed the intense competition in Japanese schools for this kind of incident. Three years later, in 1997, it was the gruesome murder of a schoolboy from Kobe that brought the problem of Japan's teen killers to international attention. A 14-year-old student abducted 11-year-old Jun Hase from school and took him into nearby hills. He then tortured, strangled and decapitated him. The severed head was left on the school gates. The police assumed that they were dealing with a psychotic adult. When the identity of the killer was discovered, there was universal astonishment and disbelief. I was very shocked when I found out the offender was the same age as my own child. The 14-year-old killer placed a note in the mouth of his victim's severed head, which read, I desperately want to see people die. Nothing makes me more excited than killing. Now the game begins. In another note he wrote, I want to take revenge on the compulsory education system that has made me transparent and invisible. These were sentiments shared by many Japanese schoolchildren. But rising teenage violence doesn't stop at the school gates. I'm really worried about the escalation of violent juvenile crime. There's a significant increase in impulsive, horrific crimes which makes me very worried about the future. People feel endangered when they walk around the city. Regular workers and housewives are being attacked by teenagers. More and more people are being victimized in the city and in the suburbs. It's not just random acts of teenage violence that are plaguing Japanese towns and cities. There are over a thousand teenage motorbike gangs known as the Bozazuku throughout Japan. These gangs made up of ordinary Japanese teenagers have become a dangerous and uncontrollable force in Japanese society. Surprisingly, there is almost no gun culture in the teen motorbike gangs. <laughs> They roam around in uniforms at weekends late at night. Big groups of them on stolen or modified bikes. Most carry knives or baseball bats. If the enemy attacks them, they hit them with these metal baseball bats. They're also used for robberies. 
That's the reality. These are the petrol bombs the gangs use. They are quite primitive. They simply fill the bottle with petrol, insert a piece of cloth, and light it. When they smash the bottle, the petrol vaporizes and explodes. This is a knife used in a murder case involving a motorbike gang. This is a butterfly knife. It's the same one that was used by a student who stabbed the teacher in Tochigi. You can open it quickly with one hand. Every November in Hiroshima, the international city of peace, hundreds of teenage motorbike gangs converge for a weekend of organized gang warfare. The riots are choreographed for the benefit of the Japanese mafia, the Yakuza, who handpicked the toughest teenagers for future membership. There were two Bosozoku motorbike gang members near where I lived, and I worshipped them. They looked really cool. I wanted to become a Yakuza, so I decided to join the motorbike gang. Oka and his friend have both served time for killing rival gang members in organized fights. This is from a newspaper reporting a fight we had. It was in all the papers and on the television news. Our friend was killed and the enemy lost someone too. I'll tell you about this one incident. It was around July when we decided to confront a rival gang in our territory. We attacked two of them. One injured his head but managed to escape. We kept the other one hostage and beat him unconscious. It went too far to have people die. But I wouldn't forgive the enemy. If they attack you, you attack them back. I was charged with manslaughter. <laughs> After you stop being a gang member, you never put the outfit on again, so I feel quite nostalgic. Although we've retired, we still have links with the Bosozoku bike gang as well as the Yakuza. If you have connections with a senior Yakuza, he'll come to your meetings. They'll come and find you, even if you don't ask them to. We believe in Yamato Damashi, which means the Japanese spirit of never retreating. If you get involved in a gang fight, there is no going back. You have to win. During World War II, the spirit of Yamato Damashi was part of the Pearl Harbor attack and described the spirit of kamikaze pilots. The idea was to respect your nation and be prepared to die for it. Ex-gang members Oka and Yoshio still have the respect of their old gang. The gangs follow the strict martial traditions of the Yakuza, the Japanese mafia. This is a Bosozoku bike gang, which runs wild looking for fights. The gang only exists for fighting. 
周りにアピールする They see me as the Almighty, the senior, the old boy. Whatever I ask the others to do, they have to obey. They'll just answer yes, sir, to whatever I tell them to do. These days, only the Bosozoku have the Yamato Damashi spirit of never retreating. The gangs are under constant surveillance from the police. Motorbike gangs have been around a long time, but now they're much more violent, stealing money and killing people. There's still a problem, but at least we can observe the gangs. But the kids who commit random impulsive acts of violence are completely invisible. Each year in Japan, blatant, reckless acts of teenage violence are increasing. The Japanese people are at a loss to understand why this is happening in their country, where overall crime is still much lower than Europe or the US. In May 2000, a 17-year-old boy hijacked a bus full of commuters. For 15 hours, Japanese television broadcast live the police pursuit of the bus. In the bus, he had a huge knife. He took the knife out and told people, I'm hijacking the bus. The hostages didn't take it seriously at first. His mother was watching the news covering the bus hijacking. She wondered who could do such a thing. As the pictures got clearer, she recognized with horror the face of her son. The bus was eventually blocked by police on the outskirts of Hiroshima. A three-hour standoff began. After a while, the Hiroshima police brought his parents and a psychiatrist to the scene by helicopter. First, the doctor tried to talk to him through the window, but that made him furious. Next, the father tried, but the police stopped him. The mother cried and screamed that she wanted him to stop, but in the end, it was all hopeless. As the coverage continued, it was reported that the teenager had already stabbed three passengers. People got really scared as he smelled the blood on the knife and took pictures of the victims. In the early hours of the morning, the police decided to storm the bus. One woman was found dead from multiple stab wounds. The killer had no previous criminal record. It was his time at school that had apparently made him mentally unstable. He wrote privately, if I cannot succeed in an orthodox way, at least I can succeed in a criminal world. He was an isolated figure who had failed his high school entrance exam. That led him to skip school and become depressed. He got more and more withdrawn at home and played TV games in his room all day. He became a Robinson Crusoe figure in his room. His room became his whole world, where he sat cocooned playing violent video games. He wasn't good at communicating with others and was bullied from an early age. His belongings were often taken away from him. 
At high school, he was told unless he jumped out of the fourth floor, his pencil case wouldn't be returned. So he jumped and broke his vertebrae. But after the bus hijacking, they've all denied there was any bullying. This is the biggest problem. Why was the school silent? If there was no bullying, then fine. But the school ordered the students not to talk about it. The Japanese now have a term for random, motiveless, and explosive violence committed by teens. They call it kireru, which means to snap or explode. What is causing these kids to kireru is the subject of intense debate in Japan. When we are talking about kireru, what they mean by that is that they are unable to express themselves verbally. They simply, you know, jump and start acting violently. Japanese have always made friends with machines. In other words, they know it is a machine, and yet they want to establish a quasi-relationship with the machine. Children think video games serve their needs better than the real human friends because you can manipulate the games more easily than you can manage human relationships. If you play a violent game today, you want more, more and more. Once you start on that track, what satisfies you tomorrow is something that is even more exciting, more violent and more thrilling. Quite a few children stay in his own world with his own interest and he's quite a maniac about certain things and live in this virtual world of their own choice. Masaya Tanaka is a typical 17-year-old school kid from a middle-class family background. His father works abroad and his mother is an art teacher. I started playing these games when I was two years old, so I've been playing for 15 years now. The games I like most are the combat games. For Masaya, playing games are a release from the everyday pressures of school. Although he has never been involved in violence, he isn't surprised that other kids do snap. We can understand why teenagers commit these murders, and we feel quite sympathetic. Of course, the teachers dismiss them as unacceptable, but for us under pressure, we understood them. For students to be successful, they have to spend long hours studying in a highly competitive, exhausting environment. They're known as the 7-Eleven kids. On an average school day, I get up at 7 and go to school at 8. School finishes at 5, and after that, I go to cramming school. On the way back from cramming school, I grab a bite to eat and arrive home at about 9 p.m. We are forced to study. There's hardly any free time left as I have to do homework. The life kids lead today is made up of great pressure at home from the parents to succeed and in school where everything is rather competitive. 
I can understand why kids can go mad at times. In 1992, I surveyed 1,800 junior and high school students. 20% were frightened that they would go insane. More than 30% felt their life was a failure. The good students build up a lot of suppressed pressures and frustrations. Nobody can predict when these pressures will explode, causing serious violence. These are not problem kids, but good boys and girls who have broken down. What dominates the kids is training to go to better schools. Do it now or you will fail. Enormous pressure on kids of this age. This isn't normal. How can kids nourish their emotions, listen to music, or create precious childhood memories with friends? They don't have time for any of this. I believe this lies at the heart of why Japanese kids are becoming strange. I understand what those Kiledu students are feeling. They are under lots of pressure from school. I think increased stress can trigger these crimes. Japanese school kids are subjected to a rigorous series of exams to get into top high schools, the only way to university and a good job. By the age of 15, 80% of school kids have failed this vital exam, and many have lost hope. It's become the norm to send kids to extra cramming schools. This makes them really exhausted. More and more of them can't make it through the exam wall. This has put teachers in the front line. Several have been violently attacked by their pupils. Last year, at another school, a teacher was shot in the face at point-blank range with an air rifle after he scolded a boy for being late. Other teachers have been stabbed by knife-wielding students. On school open days, we have to ask parents to help with the security of the kids. Teachers are not enough. You can't predict where trouble will break out next. It's crisis management. Four years ago, at this high school outside Osaka, an incident happened which changed everything. A 16-year-old boy named Takakazu Take was brutally attacked by a boy from another school. We couldn't protect this student, and this has caused us a lot of pain. Words cannot express our shock. It was a cultural day at my son's school. A student from another school picked a fight with my son for no reason. He was waiting for my son and chased after him for 700 meters or so before he caught him. I heard that my son had apologized, but this didn't stop him from being kicked and punched by the boy. Takakazu was rushed to hospital with serious head wounds. On the 15th of November, my son died.
is my son. We had to wait a long time to conceive our first child. When my wife conceived him, we said it was her birthday present. When he was born, it was raining. I was so happy, I was crying. I called my mother in the country from a payphone to tell her my son was born. School is supposed to be the safest place in the area. So why does a boy who left for school in the morning absolutely healthy have to come back home as a corpse? The incident was such a sudden event, and because it involved a juvenile, we weren't informed or anything. The court case was held in private, and we weren't allowed to know what had happened to our son. We weren't told at all about the verdict. A teacher at the school told us first. The boy was sent to a reform school and he was released within a year. The law concentrates on the protection of the offenders while ignoring the victims. It seems there is no real punishment when a 16-year-old kills another person. Mr. Take felt that his son's killer had got away with murder and was unable to cope with his grief. When I found out where the offender lived, I wanted to do to him what he did to my son. I wanted revenge. That was my immediate reaction. That killer's house is just over there. That one, that white house over there. I get really angry thinking that the boy who killed my son may be watching TV or having dinner in that house. He's living normally after killing my son. He gave us no apology and this makes me furious. Right after the incident, I drove here several times. I thought, what if I saw the guy and just hit him with my car? I could say, oh sorry, I was just careless, and get away with it. But if I cause trouble now, my family would suffer. This makes me control my rage. I can't sink as low as the offender. Mr. and Mrs. Take began to blame each other for their son's death. We fought with each other, shouting and turning the dinner table upside down. The neighbors could hear us fighting, as our house is so small. We had two options, either to get divorced or live in hell together. The frustrations were overwhelming because we couldn't speak out or find out any information. Although it is completely against Japanese tradition to discuss private grief openly, the Takes decided to go public. I remember my husband asked if it would be all right to give up our privacy. I said yes. 
We wanted people to know about the case. We made up our minds to make our voices heard. The Takes have set up the first ever victim support group in Japan. They are the first to openly challenge the juvenile law, which they believe is soft on teen killers and ignores the victims' families. The Takes want open trials in teenage murder cases and tougher sentencing for young killers. In May 2000, another murder horrified Japan and added an even greater sense of urgency to the Takes campaign. A 17-year-old schoolboy randomly stabbed to death an old lady in Aichi, central Japan. After his arrest, he apparently told police he committed the murder because he wanted to have the experience of killing while still a juvenile. In the first six months of the year 2000, 26 murders were committed by Japanese teenagers. Although the overall murder rate is lower in Japan than in the West, the number of teenagers who commit murder is fast catching up. This area is nicknamed the town of the Midnight Sun. This is Shinjuku, the busiest commercial area. There's a lot of crime here and a lot of youths hanging around. Ordinary citizens are being victimized more and more. They feel that the city is getting much more dangerous. These are some guys caught on surveillance camera attacking somebody. That's the boss. Number two, this is the guy who did the stabbing. The victim was killed during this attack. In Tokyo alone, there are about 60 youth gangs. In total, that's about 800 to 1,000 members. They commit murder and robbery. They even abduct girls and rape them. Some of the kids who join the gangs are not delinquents, but are from middle-class backgrounds. These teenagers are united by more than friendship. They're all ex-gang members, and three of them have done time in Japanese reformatories for serious crime. <laughs> Yoshio Suzuki served 14 months for killing another gang member when he was 17. He agreed to be interviewed if we concealed his identity. He comes from a middle-class background and lives with his family in an expensive suburb of Tokyo. Whatever I asked for, my parents agreed. They brought me up in a really carefree environment. When I started high school, I soon dropped out. I got bored playing around and wanted something else. My friend asked me to join the gang. It looked like fun and I wanted excitement. In central Tokyo, Yoshio meets his friend Orka, who was the leader of the Bozazuku motorbike gang before him. Thank you. 
For me, I liked the fighting most. I enjoyed intimidating the other gangs and making our gang stand out. While I was running around on the bike with the police chasing us, it was fun because of the thrill and the loud noise. It made us feel really special. I didn't worry about getting arrested. Even if you were caught, you would only get a month at the juvenile reformatory, or a year at most if things went badly. Compared to adults, the punishment for us is short. That was definitely at the back of my mind. Most of the teenagers in the bike gangs know that they will only get light punishments. The gangs are on bikes, 20 or 30 spread across the road, driving slowly. A car behind beeps at them and they stop and attack the car with baseball bats, smashing the windscreen. They ride freely all over the road. If you don't know who they are and you get in their way, they'll target you. They don't care who the victim is. Every weekend they're all around here. Superintendent Kato has spent over 20 years tracking down and convicting the Japanese Mafia. He's now focusing on the teen killers. The kids who join gangs tend to be hopeless at school and get scolded at home because their grades are so low. Gang kids have a strong desire to show off and don't know how to communicate verbally. As the Japanese economy struggles, the kids can't find jobs when they graduate. They get frustrated by that, so they release their stress in gangs. The Yakuza target those gangs to join them. If there's a physically strong gang member, the Yakuza will recruit him. They are like their reserve troops. These kids around here, they're okay. They are doing nothing wrong. They are just enjoying themselves. But we can keep an eye on the kids who commit really atrocious crimes. Some frustrated young students who fail entrance exams get together in groups and attack the homeless who can't fight back. They call them kirachu or insects and release their frustrations by killing those insects. The homeless have remained easy prey for violent teenagers. Some boys attacked us while we were sleeping. I was attacked by two of them, and three of them jumped on my friend, Mr. Komode. He was hit on the head with a baseball bat. I was hit with a bat too. My friend died. He really looked after me. The loss was a big blow, a real shock. There are so many cases in Japan now. The law is too soft. These boys know that they can get away with it. On the night of July 7, 1997, 
Yoshio's gang was planning an attack on a rival gang. There was about 50 of us around here. I haven't been here for a while. This is the spot that somebody actually died. I had a bat, and in case I lost it, I had a knife tucked in around my stomach. But I only used the bat. Everybody had a knife hidden around their body, just in case of emergencies. The opponent was 16 or 17 years old, about the same age as me. When his bike came towards us, I hit him with the bat. He fell right over and four or five of us laid into him on the ground. The victim was a complete stranger. The only thing I knew about him was that he belonged to the enemy gang. I just kept fighting. I was in a state of intense excitement. I don't remember much about it. I didn't care about anybody back then. The only thing that mattered was having fun. I didn't think a person could die so easily. He looked okay to me and then, well, you know. <laughs> Back then, I didn't feel anything for the dead guy. I was only thinking about me and about how to escape from the police. I didn't care at all about the victim. Yoshio was finally caught and convicted for killing the rival gang member. He was sentenced to 14 months in a juvenile reformatory. Reformatories such as this one outside Tokyo offer young offenders good facilities, lenient treatment, and short sentences. The Japanese way of dealing with young offenders dates from an era when extreme teenage violence was practically non-existent. The objectives of Japanese reformatories are not to punish the juveniles, but to give them the chance to re-enter society as better people. I think the reason why juvenile crime is getting worse is the lack of punishment. Teenagers learn that you receive a light punishment for killing somebody. The longest you will get is a year in a reformatory. This situation is bound to make juvenile crime worse. In one way, juvenile reformatories are highly effective. Only one in four kids reoffend compared to over three out of four in the US. But many Japanese worry that they are no deterrent for first-time offenders. Life in the reformatory was so regular and healthy compared to the life I lived before I went there. You get up and have your breakfast at a certain time, exercise at a certain time. It's really regular. 
After I came out of the reformatory, I started believing that I could do something with my life. Now I hope to go to university and study law. But the Japanese are still searching for the reasons why so many kids are driven to kill in the first place. Following the death of their son, Mr. and Mrs. Take are fighting to change the juvenile law and get their message across to the Japanese public. Individually, our voice is not loud enough to be heard. But through the mass media, like television and the radio, our message will reach a lot more people. We set up the association because we needed to speak to people who had lost a beloved child, like us. We all agreed that the juvenile law was at the root of the problem. We didn't receive any information about how our child was killed. We weren't even given the name of the offender. As parents of the victims, we need to know exactly what happened to our children so we can rebuild our lives. I saw the offender's face for the first time three years and four months after our son died. There's been no apology, no chance to meet him, and he's got away with it without showing any remorse. When I saw the offender in court, he was no longer a boy but a grown man. I couldn't look at his face. My son stopped growing at 16, but his killer grew into a man. I was so overwhelmed with sorrow. I missed my son so much. The current juvenile law was established in 1945 when the main crimes were stealing, shoplifting and fighting. The situation has changed drastically since then, so the law should be updated, shouldn't it? The Take's public demand for a review of juvenile law has huge grassroots support. Japan's widespread revulsion at kids who kill has provoked an angry national debate far exceeding that of the Bulger case in the UK. I spent a year and two months in the reformatory. If you ask me, I feel like the sentence was too short. When I belonged to the gang, I did everything without thinking of anybody else. And I don't want to be like that anymore. When I look back, I feel a responsibility towards his family. If I could turn the clock back, I would have behaved with more courage. I was mentally weak. As for my future, I'm at the stage where things are just starting and I have some hope. But I'm not sure what will happen yet.
after the fight. I'm still alive and can do anything I want. But the victim has no future. He was the son of parents who brought him up well. When I look back, I feel responsible. I feel sorry for his family. I have so many memories of my son. He often called me Okachan or Mummy. I still hear his voice ringing in my ears. I really cared for my son as I brought him up. Somebody took that precious life away for no reason. I don't think I can ever forgive that. The Takes are finally winning their battle. They have recently heard that teenagers who kill are now more likely to face open criminal trials and longer sentences. At the end of the year 2000, the Japanese government announced there was to be a nationwide investigation into why so many teenagers become violent. The law is set to change. <laughs> 